Alexander Adams is a great artist, art historian, author, and art critic who is well known. He's had articles in The Telegraph and an excellent artist. He joins me today to talk his new book, Blood, Soil and Paint, to talk about the great exhibition that's coming up with him and a lot of other right wing chads that's about to premiere in London. And we talk the leadership and principles of the new art vanguard. We might as well begin at your inciting incident, actually, because for an artist to come out and attack um, the Arts Institute, which or the, the Arts Council, to that's almost suicide for funding. What gave you the courage to say, I've had enough of this, we need to speak out? And what gave you the, that impelled you to do it? When did that happen and what happened? Well, I did originally start out with the expectation that if you produce good art, this art will be supported and promoted by the Arts Council. Um, and this was the case. Now, it obviously had, it had stylistic and political inclinations and preferences, but um, it, it was it was quite wide ranging and it supported some conservative art as well as sort of the more modernist and avant-garde stuff. So when I got my grant, I got a grant from the Arts Council back in 2003. That is, I should point out, the only time I've ever applied for a grant. So this, mm. this wasn't prompted by me um, failing to get something that I thought I was entitled to. So I, I got a grant in 2003, and this went towards a, an exhibition, a touring exhibition. But then um, when I came back to Britain in uh, 2015, um, after having lived in Germany for a while, um, I noticed that a lot of the art seemed to be identity-driven, uh, quota-driven. Now, I know that on the right, identity mm. politics is kind of like as a dirty phrase because everyone says, well, you know, mm. identity politics for the right people. It's always identity politics, whatever you're doing for the mm. right people, for the in-group or for the out-group. You know, it's always mm. going to be identity politics of some form. But, you know, I would say that the art that I was seeing promoted was specifically um, specifically supported because the either the producer or the consumers were non-white, they were minority, they were immigrants, they were women. Not technically a minority, but mm. uh, treated like a minority uh, mm. and other factors. And so I, I saw this building up over time and I thought, well, you know, I keep on getting this message that these these groups are disadvantaged. I'm not seeing that in the way yeah, things are funded. Yeah. In fact, I'm seeing the opposite. Yeah. Um, so what happened was I, I did um, a survey in um, I think it's 2018 to 2019, and I discovered that actually women, uh, in terms of representation, were not underrepresented. They had yeah. the amount of representation uh, actually equivalent to the amount that they formed of the artist body. So I would say about 45% of all professional artists are female mm. and if you look at the figures if you crunch the figures you get around 45 percent of exhibitions being or exhibitors being female so okay that correlates but actually they were winning a lot more prizes and they were getting mm. a lot more appointments in museums and arts organizations so mm. it was clear that this sort of narrative was skewed but the arts council various arts lobbies various museums mm. critics and so forth they persist with this story that mm these minorities are disadvantaged when in fact they're actually hugely um, either represented fairly or overrepresented. 
yeah. especially in the arts that have public funding. And I just decided I was going to speak out about it because mm. um, I could see that I was in a position, I had some knowledge of this. Uh, I'd been a critic mm. for a while. I had some data on it. I was going to go public. Um, I knew that the people who wouldn't like it didn't like me anyway. So yeah. in a way it was kind of, <laughs> yeah, here's, here's, here's the target. I've painted it on me. Um, you just have a, have a go and, and, so that's how it happened. So it was sort of, it was a break that happened around sort of 2018, 2019. Yeah. When I started um, publishing critical articles. Yeah, it's funny. I understand that completely because I've had public funding as well. Like festival, tra even festival travel to go out to, you know, to swan about in France with, you know, at uh, Clermont-Ferrand, stuff like that, right? And so for me, I saw exactly the same thing. I thought, this is ridiculous. Um, and even that 45% you're talking about, is pro is overrepresented in the sense of desire of women to actually, you know, because because of, of the kind of lifestyle that being an artist requires of you, how how savage it is. There's a lifestyle. lot. There's a lot more. Women are a lot more inclined to be sort of part time, or mm. they're inclined to leave the work the the art workforce completely if they have sort of primary care duties. Um, and I think that there are quite a few of them who are in the art in the professional art sphere primarily because they are subsidized uh yeah. in other words they they couldn't survive on purely what they would receive in terms of commercial selling yeah uh, exhibiting in a free market and so forth so it's kind of that 45 percent is already artificially kept high and look, when I when you look at about it, I mean, I don't want to use the words of the enemy here, but it's it's not about that. It's about defeating the the, the you know the patriarchy. It's about defeating the ethnic group that has uh, the power and getting rid of that. It has nothing to do. They always present a certain propaganda based on they'll say, oh, it's about being equal to what the population is, and it never is because the people that they start to equalize it always exceeds that, and then they just keep going. I've seen this in the data. I've looked at the data. Right. Of, of in different countries as well. And I'm looking at it and going, hang on, that native group, say it's uh, Canada or Australia. Hang on. The aboriginals, these it's above the 10 percent of their thing. You don't care. You're just going to keep going until you defeat the, you know, it, of course, the world is never going to be equal. It would be nicer if it was closer to competence based, at least, though, because the junk that you that ends up coming out. But yeah. Yeah. And, and also what you'll find is that once you get past a certain level and it becomes overrepresentation, then, oh, it doesn't really matter because it's compensation for historical injustices. So yeah, if you yeah. look over the lifespan of <laughs> this, the nation or this museum, you know, if you if you backdate everything by, you know, 100 years or 200 years, then actually this is just a small fraction of justice. So we're actually yeah. compensating for all those artists who never got represented in the past. Of course, what I would say is, well, the artists who are who are benefiting from this sort of artificial stimulation, this artificial um, representation, as it were, sponsored representation, they're not the artists who had who were who received the prejudice in the past. They're not the ones who were misrepresented. They're the ones who were not mm. able to go to art school and stuff. Because we're talking about people who are 50, 100, 150, mm. 200 years ago. Those people are all dead. Mm the people who are getting the benefits the people who are getting the subsidies the people who are um who are now privileged are super privileged um because they've never actually had to encounter any serious racism or any serious discrimination yeah. in the 
in the uh, in the arts funding world. In fact, they've or artificially they've they've had a they've already been prejudiced. They've uh, sorry they've already had a life of privilege up to this point, and now they're becoming super yeah. privileged. Yeah, it's even far beyond that. I mean, look, God, you could make so many arguments that well, you would not even be here if it wasn't for all the stuff that happened 200 years ago. You'd be in a <laughs> loincloth or whatever, depending on who it is. But then I don't want to yeah. go that far. But anyway, but then when you even look at the native population argument, say in Canada or Australia, they'll say, oh, the natives, oh, they're oppressed, and they're, but they're the native, so they should get the extra thing because they're the native, right? So <laughs> if you apply the same thing to England, it's like, okay, well, then shouldn't we just be backing the ethnic group that is native to this place yet they just switch it right because it's just about defeating the 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 group that has that's at the top of the uh the higher competence hierarchy at the time yeah because because recently there was a european report mm. which said that there are there are no indigenous peoples in europe at all apart from the sami <laughs> in northern scandinavia yeah. and you think oh well that's kind of convenient isn't it mm. yeah um, and they, yeah, they, so they even... sort of they're, they're working they're working backward from the they're working back from, from from this argument of indigenous of protecting indigenous people so it's like they're having to work back well we can't have white people being indigenous anywhere yeah so how can <laughs> yeah. we sort of retro how can we retrospectively <laughs> exclude them all and this yeah. is you know why they get these reports out i suppose it is in advance of bringing all the population up because that's in that wf plan but not to go into that subject so let's go we'll pull it back to where it belongs so you're okay, so you're inciting incident. Now you're in this world, you're publishing a lot of these books. How have you found the community that you've entered? You're building it yourself too. You released a manifesto about um, establishing an art vanguard, uh, this is like uh, towards the Bowden way of thinking, right? And so has, has that been quite exciting, I imagine? How has that progressed? How has that built? You're hosting a lot of events. Just take us through the establishment of this new uh, scene. Uh, that you're a part of and one of the leaders of. Yeah, uh, well, what what happens is that you have you have two groups. You have two one group which is actively affiliating with me and the, the people I'm surrounded with, the people I'm close to, and we're sort of and we are sort of reactionary modernists, or we are traditionalists, or we're postmodern conservatives, or something. You know, however you define it, because there's. There's obviously going to be a mixture of styles, and that's something which characterizes, I think, the art of the the dissident sphere. Um, that you have a number of different styles and people coming from different backgrounds and having different ideas, although they do have many values and principles in common. So there's that group. And then you also have another group which I've been speaking to through, for example, uh, the Jackdaw, which is sort of like a print newsletter uh, in Britain, comes out once every two months. And I write articles for them. And I've been saying to them, listen, you don't know it yet, but you are a dissident. If you are a white person, if you are a male, if you are hoping that your art will be judged on its merit and that you will get a fair slice of the pie um, according to your product, according to the quality of your art, you are already a dissident because you are thinking in a way that the establishment does not think. The establishment does not treat you seriously. It will not treat you fairly. You are already dissidents. You just need to wake up to the fact that you are dissidents. Now, obviously, the vanguard group, the more active group, the more active dissidents, um, they are sort of higher risk takers. They are gamblers. Mm. They want to be in there at the start. They want to say, yeah, they want to put their head above the parapet. And they want to say, yes, I am part of this movement. I am part of this group. I reject the status quo. I separate myself from the state. I separate myself from art establishments, from the art 
biennales which um, circulate art at high costs, at high values around the world. I'm not part of that set. I'm something different, and I'm working with a community of other people to do something different. Now, they're obviously taking risks. They're early adopters, as it were, you know, sort of in terms of technology. They're the early adopters who pay a high price, but they get in early because they see the opportunity. And I think that once you get these people in, and as I said in my article about um, how to start a distant art movement, you need to show that there are rewards for becoming this part of this dissident group, that you will achieve high status and that this will become the high status position yeah. as the state art becomes more and more moribund that bioleninism takes over and people just stop <laughs> going to museums yeah. and displays of new art because they know how terrible it's going to be we are waiting setting up our own system ready to receive those visitors those critics those collectors and you can see that uh it's necessary to create our own awards and you see with the passage prize that that's starting to happen in new york cursus yarvin's a part of that and I can see that people like yourself are now driving that. I imagine that you, you do you have plans to do something like that to have? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and also I am 1776 is uh, setting itself up as a foundation to support mm. the arts. Um, so that's that's exciting. So, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff which is which is going on now. And yeah, so we're, we're getting together a group of artists and we're going to be having an exhibition in London uh, in the mm. summer. Uh, this will be the details will be announced closer to the time, but this is already the ball is already rolling. Um, this is going to be exciting. We're going to be able to, you know, put our cards on the table. People are going to be yeah. able to judge us. So because it's very easy saying we 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 uh, we don't approve of what's in the Tate Gallery. We don't approve mm. of uh, what yeah. you're seeing in the mainstream art magazines. We don't believe in that. That is something that's mm. antithetical to our desires and our values mm. having to actually belly up to the bar and and show what you've got um that's another step and that's um obviously a big risk so we want to get it as right as possible um yeah. and so that's going to happen in the summer and we'll see how that goes there and and anyone who was not going to be able to get to this exhibition uh we're hoping that it's going to be lots of photographs are going to be circulated of it we're going to be able to do like an interactive mm walk around so you can actually look through your computer and do a tour do a virtual tour um you know and that you'll be able to maybe buy some prints or mm -hmm. some original paintings and so forth so even though it is it is going to be geographically centered in london we're hoping that it's going to be um an international event yeah great because i mean a lot of people i've got a lot of actually a lot of artists in uh, my community and I'm always thinking about ways that they can, the audience can participate. So that's good to know. So I'll obviously link your stuff in the description so they can know when those events. Absolutely. Are and and as, a, as a movement, we've decided that we're not going to be, we're going to be discriminating, but we're not going to be sort of super exclusive. It's not going to be yeah. a situation where you, you have to, you have to pay a subscription and you get yourself a little dissident art card. I mean, that, that would be nice and corny. Um, uh, but but at the same time, of course, you're dedicated. I mean, of course, people coming along to the to participate in the events, but in terms of the the prizes, though, like in your manifesto, and I think it's so important because I'm, as you can tell, I'm I'm pretty uh, uh, dedicated to uh, high production value. Not, I mean, not so much that much with this show, but from my film industry stuff, that it's very important to me that high competence, high professionalism, because 
you know. So a lot of people will say, oh, let's create a dissident thing, and they're just not competent. You have to be competent, right? That you're, yeah, or you're so, just a complainer so, who was never talented in the first place. So it has absolutely. to be done by so, competent people. Mm. It's, it's, really, it's really important that um, mm. we start off professionally, that we have very high-quality works, that we treat the exhibition professionally, that you know things are framed properly. We're going to be going for a nice-quality catalogue, we're going to be doing there's going to be like a dedicated website where you can go and you can view the items and find out more about um, the artists and to try and make this as serious as possible to show that we are serious people and that you know that we are committed um also um so i think that's really important to us i and i, and I agree that the way you're doing things and the way you approach this and the way a number of other um, content producers, um, both artistic and media and political, the way they work is very important that you step up your game and that you show that you're not a sort of a backroom operation. Mm. Yeah, I, I think especially for some of the older audience that are used to le legacy media, um, I think that's that's something that helps them come across. Though I think that there are two separate things. So the younger audience that sometimes prefer that rawer thing, but I also think there's a big swath of it, probably millennial to Gen X to Boomer, well, late millennial that is, oh sorry, early millennial, who the production value brings them across, especially people that aren't full dissident like uh, on our side. But um, on on that, moving on towards your book that you've recently uh, you've recently uh, finished, maybe you can just talk a bit about your intentions with it what 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 yeah what you were hoping to achieve uh in the creation of it and maybe synopsize it for us if you can yeah oh well thank you um yeah, yeah so the book is um uh blood soil paint um it's uh an essay it's it's, it's essentially it's a long essay on uh, romanticism nationalism and art mm -hmm. and it talks about um how much uh national character influences art and this has become like a quite a big deal because of course um the mi minority artists who are promoted by the state in the west of course they they're very much talked about in terms of their lived experience and yet mm. of course this is exactly the thing that you can't say about european art you can't say that mm. it's in incommunicable that it's um resides and it springs forth out of um the 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 Greek people or the Italian people or the German people. You know, there are certain things that you're not allowed to say. Mm. So the this is an examination of how um, people, essentially mainly people in the 19th century and the early 20th century thought of this mm. and whether or not they thought that um, uh, culture was essentially derived from blood or from um, uh, through uh, culture. So whether yeah. it was sort of innate or whether it was enculturated. Um, so I look at uh, the romantic movements in the 19th century and people think of the romantic movements as being sort of, you know, like old sort of fuddy-duddy, you know, sort of stuck in the past, something that's been around forever. But actually the romanticists came out of the Enlightenment. They're actually post-Enlightenment. So they're actually more modern than the Enlightenment thinkers of the late um, 18th century. And these arose during the French Civil War, uh, sorry, the French uh, Revolution. Um, because it was a way of bonding the people together. You know, what do we have in common? If we don't have the king anymore, we've executed the king, we, we don't believe in the divine right of kings, what do we have that bonds us together as a people? So we don't have a common leader. We What do we have? We have blood, we have our land. So then you have um, romantic artists going to the pre 
um, the pre-Christian era and saying, ah, listen, French people or German people, we had a common, we had a common bond long before the Romans invaded, and then later we had the Christian mm. Christianization and the, and the Christian kings and so forth. We had this, mm. we had this early, primitive, powerful mm. link um, through our native native tribes living on our native land um and so that's why you have interest that's why you have um artists going and painting sort of ancient burial mounds and so forth and or yeah. talking about or painting depicting uh sort of pre-christian myths and so forth um so that, that's that's essentially where it starts and it looks through um how that was received in uh Nor especially norway and germany in the early 20th century mm. I mean, they're not wrong, right? Heidegger even talks about this when he goes out to Greece, about how very being itself is brought in and given form by uh, the Greek gods and how the Greek gods are the very land itself. You might have read his um, Sojourns to Greece, perhaps, um, where he talks about these different things, about how Dasein or being, uh, their being. It's given form by the different temples. The temples actually reflect the temple. The, the temple is rooted in the soil mm. and it's a transmission yes. from the people of the soil mm. up to the heavens. Uh, yes. So um, so you have um, Heidegger coming up with this idea that um, that uh, culture is, is, is essentially um, based in nation or nationhood. And that's to do with the people. Mm. And this was particularly important for the Germans, of course, because when, until Germany was unified in 1871, it was a sort of it was a collection of kingdoms, of princedoms, of uh, bishoprics, of um, various um, territories which had never previously been unified. And but you might say, what about language? They're, well, then they're, they're speaking different dialects. Yeah. So um, Prussian and Bavarian and Frisian. Frisian is actually quite closely related to Dutch languages. So it's it's not um, it's not that they had this in common. They didn't have religion in common um, because you had the Protestant North and you had a Catholic South. Mm. Um, and um, and also this is this is quite a big problem for Vienna. So Vienna is capital of the Austro-Hungarian um, Austro Empire. All these different nationalities, I mean, like uh, dozens of different nationalities and ethnic groups, um, and you had lots of different uh, religions, uh, different sects and so forth. Mm. And so how do you unify all these? Well, you, you say, oh, well, we all speak German. German is our common language. So actually, German is a common language was actually rejected by the pan-germanists they said no 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 because look really we're getting all these we're getting all these hungarians who are speaking german and they're not proper germans and the czechs yeah. and the and the jews and the moravians and they're they're not yeah. proper germans no 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 it's not to do with language it's to do with blood it's to do with ethnicity mm. um so yes yeah, so that was one of the reasons why um um the pan-germanists were so very cautious about the idea of language as being a unifier yeah, I mean, I think there's there's truth to that. There are many things that give form to the ethnos, or uh, Dugan talks about. I mean, I do think there is a kind of thing, you, you can call it an angel that emerges, which he calls the Narud, or even Avola talks about the metaphysical soul that comes out of uh, the body, yeah. I suppose. So there is an element of these things that land goes into it. So, And I think there is more to being than what Heidegger talks about where, uh, when he says language is the house of being. I also think procedure is the house of being and that the music, there's a musicality, a tonality that's the house of being as well that gives form to it, right? 
not just yeah. language. And we see that in cognitive science now as procedural knowledge, mm -hmm. perspectival knowledge and participatory knowledge is it just these different yeah. uh, forms of knowledge that give form yeah. to it. So it seems to back up what the romantics are talking about the more we learn. Whereas it was probably a lot of people in the materialist age after that started to say, oh, these people were just whimsical. But no, they were, I think, uncovering something that was already implicit. So when people say that nationalism is a modern phenomena, I would say that, especially in England as well, is that, no, it's been an implicit thing for so much longer than before people even articulated it, even particularly in England, right? And the king was only was only ever well, really became an expression of it, an external press of it from something that was in being anyway of these nations. Not every nation, but there are particular ones, European nations that are very strong in that. There are ethnos in there and the thing that emerges out of that. Yeah, well, it's a tricky one because nationalism suddenly becomes to the fore when you no longer have a king so in that way or you might say that nationalism is an old idea but it's um but it's a post-revolutionary um idea as well it, it becomes it becomes super important um because in the past you did have appeals to patriotism but when you were fighting for example so if you were in a war you had uh, you owed your fealty to your lord and your lord owed fealty to the king mm. so you were fighting for your lord you weren't necessarily fighting for the king you weren't even necessarily fighting for your nation you were just fight fighting for the local lord who was also a knight mm. you had a military position and uh, you were part of his you were part of his retinue mm. so it's um well, yeah, so that's it's, where it's, it's, I mean, it's that, it becomes propositional. It becomes propositional at that time. Before that, it's implicit. The, if you think about yeah. the king, he's almost the sole picture of the thing you imitate. So you have a, it's, you have an ideal picture of it, even if, however articulate, of this king, of the uh, lord himself, uh, imitative. You have a sort of evaluative picture that is non-formal. They're sort of value attractors. This gets a lot stronger in England, actually, with the yeoman who who goes to the mm. war with um, Edward uh, in Agincourt and Crete, the Battle of Creasy, these things where the yeoman goes over and fights and he's imitating the king, right? So he gets the soul picture yes. that uh, Evola talks yeah, that, that's, about. Yeah, that's, that's an Frank example. Yes, Sorry, I mean, no. that, that's, that's, that's an, that, no, 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 absolutely. No, you're completely correct. That, that, that's a, a good instance of um, nationalism being used uh, to bond the soldiers and to bond the yeomanry. yeomanry. Um, I, I think that I mean so this anyway, non-propositionally, no, no, no. though. I just mean, I don't mean this in terms of, it's someone that they don't articulate it in language. It's, it's a bond, an implicit bond that, that occurs. So it's, so it's a bond that exists. It is an ethnos and a nation. It's inarticulate, though, although it does begin to be more articulate very quickly in England. But so I would say that these things do have an inarticulate thing in the romantic poets. Some nations don't. Germany was always very divided. I'm not sure how much it is, but probably does. I, maybe you can comment on on that do you see a earlier or more implicitness to or something that's earlier in Eng england do you see it in germany that it, they did have that uh, pre-propositionalizing it after revolutions well I, I would say that the 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 romantics deliberately deliberately kind of obfuscated it because they were they were they were deeply involved in looking to the common man looking to the peasantry as uh, as an embodiment 
of uh, what it was to be a part of this nation, because these were the people who worked most closely with the soil. They were most closely associated with the seasons. They were shaped more by the land mm. and by the climate than anyone else. So in a way they were saying, so they were with the, in some ways they were looking up towards the aristocrats mm. as, um, as sort of standard bearers, as thinkers, as people who can um, uh, articulate the sort of the national character but they're also in a way looking down towards the peasantry as a sort of um as a sort of deep connection to not only to the soil and the climate but also to the past mm. because they're they are seen as the the simplest the crudest people so they are most mm. like the crude rough ancestors who uh, inhabited who inhabited the country before romanization and christianization yeah, it does seem like there, or perhaps this may depend on where it happens, but there is an egalitarian bent to to some of these romantic. Yeah, lives. so it, 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 it's, it's complicated. So mm. sometimes they're advocating mm. for, you know, the vote. Uh, they're saying, you know, like, oh, all, all men are equal. We are all, because we're all brothers, we're all essentially, we all share certain characteristics. And then on the other hand, they're also adulating the hero, the man of action. Now, not every yeah. person can be a hero, can be a man of action, can be a warrior, can be a poet. Not mm. everyone has that ability. So that's a naturally yeah. an aristocratic division or mm. a warrior division or a priest division or a poet division. Mm. Um, so there are certain things that you are necessarily going to get people who are better at. And this is going to be something that uh, is going to be innate. So, yeah, so so in, in their the absolutely schizophrenic because they're doing the two things of like wanting absolute you know fair representation and guilds and so forth and mm. and and respecting the common man and drawing wisdom for the common man but at the same time saying oh but there are really firm distinctions and specializations that need to be paid mm. attention to well i mean that's good because if you can find those two things i love the romantic poets i love this era of it's it's you know it's the go-to especially now we need this now but in terms of articulating truth, I hate the word romantic because people think you're putting some enchantment on it. The problem is we've become this is the materialism is false. It's not the actual uh, the actual enchantment of being or the that is the true true being. Because when you get closer to being, as Heidegger talks about, that's when it uh, is energetic and at the lights when you break down the. Uh, ideas that you've got of beings or ideas of things that are built up or what you've been taught in, in primary school, you've been taught this materialism, it, it starts to be imbued, as you notice as an artist, I'm sure, in your process, is that when you break down that, you'd have processes to break down your uh, how the world is welding to you, breaking that down like you do when you go to an Orthodox church. You, when you're entering, you've got a ritual procedure to break that down. So... What they taught, what they were doing, was trying to connect. Well, as far what my I think is trying to connect people to get them back to this this something they'd lost, some authenticity that they'd lost from the rationalism. Yeah, yeah, Ab absolutely. So in a way that they're, it's um, yeah. It's, so it's sort of it's anti-rationalist. It's you know obviously when you look at the romantic artists and the romantic poets, there's a, a great stray strain um, of. Um, the gothic of the morbid of the mm. extreme um, of you know you have writers like Edgar Allan Poe concentrating on the macabre and the bizarre mm. and the um, 
and the unhealthy and the unwholesome mm -hmm. and saying that this is something which is overlooked by the enlightenment thinkers the rationalists the materialists the people who are who want to who are essentially the materialists who are sort of going to improve society and improve man um mm -hmm. step by step um in a reciprocal manner through materialism, through material progress. And the romantics say, no, 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 there is something deeper than that. There is something yeah. more essential, more primal than that. And so that's mm -hmm. why you have the drive to go back and look at pre-Christian myths mm -hmm. and legends and practices, also going to these sites and painting them, painting the dolmens, going to mm -hmm. Stonehenge and painting, you know, and painting the stones there. Um, and you know you have artists going and painting you know sort of arthur and merlin and yeah. and so forth yeah uh, so sort of, uh, yeah i was just uh, no 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 i've i've, I've uh, there was another point that i'm sure i had but um it, it's flown away yeah they're just digging into being they're digging into being because as we know this the history of being or the sending of being as heidegger talks about is that the things that have been especially important ones, haven't disappeared. They're part of our existential being right now. What has been still is in that way. There are things that have passed that, were, that weren't vouchsafed, but they, they are in the way that being is currently even manifesting, right? From its original sending. I know this is, I mean, sorry everyone for the Heidegger terminology. <laughs> it's confusing, but whatever. You get, get, what I'm, get what I'm saying is it's part of our being. And these guys are digging by going into, the, into looking into Stonehenge. They're actually digging into what... Because if you don't make a distinction between material and su subject, they are digging into being there, and then they are almost uh, exhuming our being at the same time by doing that. What gave form yeah, to it where it is now? Um, yeah, sorry, you're about, you're about yeah. To so, so yeah, actually, yeah, so this is actually comes up. Um, so, and there's also this idea of um, empire of um, nation building. So. I mean, this is all tied up with the, the whole sort of Orientalist thing. Um, so once you start to sort of expand into other nations and especially into other territories, not um, territories outside of your continent, outside of your approximate uh, position, your proximate position. Um, so you're starting to look and you're starting to compare yourself and to measure others and you're this also means that you start measuring yourself. So you get this rise of the knowledge gathering of the other, which is, you know, your colonial subject, but it's also looking back yeah. at you and looking back at your origins. So this is also the mm. origins of um, archaeology and ethnology mm. and so forth. So, and of course, I mean, that is, that is extremely materialistic and enlightenment thinking, but it's also, uh, it also feeds the romantic drive to, return to the pagan or at least examine the pagan it's it's very interesting that um i was reading a book or reviewing a book on archaeology and the the origins of archaeology and there seems to be in the renaissance and there seems to be a definite tendency amongst scholars and historians to to discount early christian inscriptions and and so mm. forth because they were interested in the pre-christian period and in a way yeah. they were absolutely decidedly aloof towards really interesting things about the uh, origins of christianity they were much mm. more they were sort of super snobs in favor of the of paganism yeah. or because they were sort of uh, more they were more humanist in outlook and more atheistic yeah. in outlook 
sort of look at. Uh, also, we I don't know if it's just Europeanness, but we do have a bias for the other, looking for the other. I suppose at that time, where Christianity had been, uh, not that Christianity is other really from classical, but they would really mm. have they they would perhaps have seen it that way, looking for the other thing that we don't currently know to look into. Well, especially if you're especially if you're from the north, if you're from the north, mm. then you're thinking of Christianity as essentially a Mediterranean religion, mm. which it is, you know, sort of, you know, Palestine, Israel, mm. Egypt, um, you know, the the the, the, the oldest um, strands of Christianity were in mm. Egypt and um, Arabia and so forth. Uh, and, you know, along uh, the Levantine um, mm. area. But so, but if you're if you're from Northern Europe, you're thinking, well, what about us? Where's where's our history? Because of course, if you've got runes, but they're very very basic, and they're to do with like sort of distances or or you know titles or titles or inscriptions or rulers and so forth, claiming territory. They're not really telling sagas. The sagas were all oral, so most of them have disappeared. Of course, the Greeks were writing them down. So you get the you get the Iliad and the Odyssey, getting passed down and written down at an early stage but in the north you don't get that so a lot of northern nations are looking towards christianity and saying well that's that's that was that's definitely been imported that's come from outside it's not innate is there something that we can find within ourselves and with it, especially within our past that um is more native to us mm. Uh, and hence you get the sort of the rise of the the Nordic culture and so forth, which becomes quite a big issue at the beginning of the 20th century in Germany. I think they're right to look, though. They're right to look. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. Because yeah. It's, and, they, and we should, because as Tolkien reveals in his studies of this Battle of Maldon, all this stuff, is that he reveals that we still have the valuation of it was not long enough ago. And this gels with Jung about archetypes and how long they last. If you want to think about an archetype, Really, he's talking about daemons. <laughs> when Jung talks about archetypes, half the time he means daemons as well, right? So he only comes across as an empiricist, so you accept his... his... Anyway, anyway, point is, these things are still in our valuation structure, right? So bleak heroic necessity was a value that Tolkien locates from the old cosmology that is still in our current being. And you see this in Dunkirk spirit, as they call it, right? That is bleak heroic necessity. It's, it's even reflected in uh, what they would call Protestant work ethic, which is where you work yourself to death. And you do this because of Ragnarok, right? It's this, the old cosmology has this uh, sort of su such suicidal uh, battle. It doesn't feel good unless you're losing in a way, right? So you work yourself to death in that way. Yeah. So the things that I think more motivate these later sociologies that uh, articulate them as, like I said, Protestant work ethic or the underdog, better actually articulated by Tolkien and by these this old cosmology, which is integrated with, if you're a Christian, and I am, it's integrated under Christ, of course, right? And hope's put at the top of it and uh, be before giving. But it's still there. It's still in the evaluative structure. And so I think that the theory holds sound that the romantics and the people, they're uncovering things that are still in being. And it wouldn't have been interesting to them. It wouldn't have impelled them once they found it in the sagas if it didn't have value. Because what's the value? Just mm. to find the past. But no, there's something in the story itself that pulls you, which means it's in your structure. Or else you, you have to have something in your being to begin with to actually be drawn to the art itself. It's not just a thing on its own that's... Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't... Be, yeah. It, it, 
Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't become meaningful mm. just because you understand it. It becomes meaningful mm. because it's part of you, because mm. you are an extension of that. You are a descendant yes. of those people. Um mm. and that your ancestors your ancestors believed and were formed by those um those principles. And I there's a really I mean, it comes up in book really interestingly that uh Knut Hamsen, famous Norwegian novelist, um a wrote a book called um, The Growth of the Soil, in which this is essentially the story of Isaac, who is a pioneer and he goes into the wilderness and he's a very simple man and he cuts trees, he fells trees, he tills the soil, he waters the soil, he grows things. Um, and he has a very simple life. And he is seen as like sort of um, his goodness and... Uh, is, is essentially simple because it comes from doing simple acts and you mm. have to work hard just simply to survive. Mm. So obviously in Norway, you've got a long period where you have where you have um, near near total darkness because this is quite mm. up at the north. Mm. In, this is where Knut Hamsen came from. This is where he set his novel. Mm. He set it up in the far north, so it's near the Arctic Circle. So you have long periods of darkness. You have long winters. You have lots of snow. You can't do anything. You can't do any farming in that in that period. So you have to work really hard. The growing season is yeah. really short. You have to work really, really hard and prepare very well. Otherwise, you will die. So obviously, this is, is ingrained yeah. into your character. Yeah. Your ancestors understood this absolutely implicitly. And obviously, somehow, this has been transmitted to later generations in the north so you mm. can't be lackadaisical you can't you know there was this idea that you know that the, the persian could sit around and basically be lazy because he could just simply reach up and pick up you know figs and, yeah. and grapes yeah. you know he didn't yeah. he didn't have to work because yeah. he was in a he yeah. was in a mild climate he was in a fertile area that mm. the everything was abundant um whereas mm. in the north thing resources are really scarce winter is really dangerous mm. you are on the edge of survival all the time mm. and that this changes your character um mm. and so obviously and so yes yeah, so knut hampson's great great author and then and this reflects and this is why i always say is that the way you defeat us is you smother us in ease because we only get started the north man the englishman when things get bad because we're used to having we used to have that environment because of the colds, because of the winters, right? That's what the northerner. Yeah. So when people say that we're done and over, no, it's it's what now is when we're just going to start getting started. When things get bad, is when our spirit starts to rise. Yeah, um, but I'm things I'm curious yeah. about masculinity as well. So how is it? How is what is the what is the masculine archetype in the really really moderate climates in the sort of in in Persia in sort of you know in turkey uh, um you know in sort of in sort of in italy and so forth what mm. what is the what is the archetype because the archetype of the of the masculine man in the north is to work hard is to be mm. halting of speech but decisive in action and so mm. forth and to be you know relatively to be relatively reticent and so forth but mm. we don't see that in the south and it's i'm i wonder what what constants are there are in masculinity across the world what it's probably think? well yeah that it is interesting i do think there is a distinct separation between mediterranean and north in that way i mean you could call their leaders they're more flamboyant that's for sure so it might be more mm. about a 
dominance, a direct dominance. You can see that in Italian politics. But then you had mm, the Stoics mm. in Roman, and they they would hold things in too, yeah, in a different way. That's also a procedural thing. That's sorry, a that's a propositional um, a theory and way of being that they've inherited, rather than a, uh, a more implicit way, which is the northern northern right. So I do think there is a Mediterranean. Yeah, at least you can see it in the Italians now. It's probably more about direct dominance and holding the top position. But again, I haven't, uh, t- I haven't analyzed them as much as I have the Northerners. So, but I know that um, we're more obsessed with the procedure or, or were more obsessed with the procedure of the church and getting it right. And you can see that in the mm. winter thing of the preparations. And the Italian mm. and the Mediterranean, and this, this Tolkien, by the way, talks about this as well. When they go to worship the Catholics... They give the, they, as long as they can go to the, the ceremony at the church, they'll do business at the at the thing, right? And they'll break all the laws as long as they can do the confession, right? As lo- so, mm. all, they even talk to each other and do business at the, the at the uh, Catholic church. But if you go to a Catholic that is a Northerner, so no, don't do business here. It's this is what's yeah. supposed to be done, like licht eber und, you know, that's yes. German or, or not even yeah, German. So, it was English well, well, yeah, as well. I mean, that- but, Mm. Yeah, but the, the British, the mm. British thing is, of course, is sort of um, is queuing is mm. um, um, it's also very subtle social signals. So it's to do with like sort of irony and politeness, and this is actually mm. a way of gauging whether the person you're speaking to is in the in group. Do they actually know what the mm. are they actually responding to the irony? Are they noticing yeah. it? Yeah. Are they are they noticing the joke? Mm. Are they are they are they sort of are they using their cutlery correctly? Because mm. if they're not using their cutlery correctly, then you know that you mm. are a slightly you're a slightly more knowledgeable and more refined than they are, mm. and you've caught them out. And these are actually mm. ways of grading and discriminating between people. And so dry humour is, is is another one. Yeah. Yeah. And even allowing, I mean, there's procedures in England that are very important to truth as well. And you mentioned irony, and you see this at the pub. It's a Robin Hood. It's the throwing of barbs. That's a allowed procedure. So it is part of this uh, properness, but it's important to lower people's egos to tell them the truth so they don't go out of control, right? So that's perhaps something that happens in the Mediterranean. They don't perhaps do that as much. But because we throw the bars at each other, think about it, like Boris Johnson. I don't like Boris Johnson or anything, but the buffoon, he's, he makes fun of himself. It's about showing that he's a, he, he can... Uh, uh, because we have this value for deflating... It's adaptive. It's adaptive for the person. Because if you go inflate out of control, you are not seeing the truth of, be, of being, of what's going on, right? So that, yeah. and so we have a procedure for that. So it's not, not just about catching them out. It is definitely what you're saying is true, but it's also a procedure for the truth. It's a procedure. Mm. So it's not, we don't just fake things out or anything. It, but it, it's also, yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a procedure to reveal the truth of what's going on and to keep you in truth. Because it's, think about it, it's a good way of getting your friend to sort of know that he's being a bit of a dick or a bit ego. You say a joke, make fun of him, doesn't take it personally and goes, ah, last then thinks about it. Hmm, later he, you go, maybe I was mm, right. Yeah. You're making a joke about it. So, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I know that, mm. I know that Americans don't really understand that because they see, they see sort of British people, especially British men tearing each other apart. Mm. Um, and, and they think it's for, they think it's, it's, it's genuine grievances. It's genuine, um, animosity but it's not it's mm. um yeah as, as you say it's a, it's a way of bonding and it's also an indirect way of showing that you care 
as well because yeah, if yeah. you don't care about if you don't care about someone you don't you just you don't attack them you don't notice them you just don't respond to them if you care yeah. about someone you you poke them a little bit when they step out of line because you want them to do better in future and also you want them to know that hey i'm looking out for you and I'm, you know, I care about what you do. So this is this is what I think of you, and this is what I think you should be correcting. And I think a lot of Americans they they don't get this because it's um, slightly different. And also, you know, we have this natural reticence that you know we don't we don't say to uh, we don't say to our male friends, "Oh, I, I love you" or whatever. It's just, yeah, you know, we would, you know, you you do it, you know, you you do it very dryly, you do it very indirectly. Looking to someone like Tennyson, there is an interesting thing. I mean, he's probably he's not exactly a romantic, but but he they post romantic anyway, is that what was so interesting about him? I don't know if you see this in other romantics, is that he begins to realize that progress doesn't work at the end. And I don't know if you maybe you can comment about that and perhaps other romantics realizing this narrative of Whig po uh, progress. You know how Tennyson has the two yeah, poems? He's got the. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Well, I would say. Well, I don't know. I mean, you, you do get you do get people like well, obviously Shelley didn't live that long, and he died quite he died very young, and he was the most extreme. He was the most socialist of all of the yeah um, most materialist of all of the romantics, um, and an outright revolutionary. Um, um, so he's so he he obviously doesn't he doesn't fall into that area. Um, you get, uh, I think that you do get a little bit more in Wordsworth, but I couldn't, I couldn't name you any examples. I'm re I've recently been working on an article on Constable the painter, and I know that Constable is regarded as quite a reactionary, yeah, which is yeah. something that I wasn't, I wasn't aware of. That um, that you've had lots of um, Marxist art historians claiming that because of his class sympathies, you know, because he came from a sort of a middle class um, merchant merchant background that his family was um landowners and um mill owners and they made and they made barges and so forth that they naturally had that they had uh, domestic servants and they had employees and so forth and that he was naturally more attuned to the the farm the the farmer the larger farmer yeah. rather than the peasant uh, especially in relation to the Enclosures Act and so the enclosure, various Enclosures Acts, which um, uh, removed land from public common ownership mm. and transferred it to um, the the farmer. And I hadn't realised that um, Constable actually, and when you read some of his letters and so forth, you actually feel like you realise he actually is a sort of a, a high Tory in many respects, yeah, and he's right. he's he's sort of virulently anti uh, anti sort of um, He's, he's quite sympathetic towards the the peasant and the working man but it's like you know in the proper place in the correct yeah, order the the, the 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 hierarchy the chain of being and so forth you have to observe those if you start to um break those apart then uh naturally man's malicious character will come through so i Sorry, I mean, I kind of diver diverted onto a, something else but yeah so you do no, have no. romantics for example constable um and wordsworth and who actually knew each other and they actually corresponded a little bit mm. um and um uh, constable was very appreciative of wordsworth po of wordsworth's poems um yeah. and um also you get people like de quincey and de quincey um 
and later Baudelaire, the French poet Charles Baudelaire, they become very um, concerned about drug use, which is kind of ironic because they were taking drugs themselves, but they were saying, you know, actually, this is actually quite deleterious to the moral character. Um, but it's interesting because it emphasizes damnation and the mm. power of Christianity and the truth of Christianity, because mm. we see we see what damnation is like. We get an insight into the damned through deprivation and mm. addiction and so forth. So they are very so they don't see that so they don't see materialist and psychedelic experiences as liberating. They see them as um mm. ways of being chained and of um coming to ruination yeah it's funny that's very has a lot of foresight for a lot of people that are psychonauts now right that they use it for they think they've got in touch with some higher truth and perhaps it can be occasionally i don't know i've, I've only had very some psychedelics you know a long time ago at university <laughs> and not any of the big ones um so i understand what they are but yeah, you do see these people that have uh, YouTube channels uh, and they talk about these psychonautic experiences and nothing ever seems to change with these people. That, I mean, what was the great insight you had? It, it, it does, you, tend you know. confirm, does tend to confirm mm. that their, their suspicions, their, 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 their lack of um, respect for capitalism, their, 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 mm. their selfishness, their indolence and so forth. It does tend to confirm all of the things that already existed. It's strange. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't tend to uh, send them in the other way towards sort of community or restraint or Christianity or any of those things. And, and in a sense, these poets too, these artists, are canaries in a coal mine is a good way of putting it. But a better way is that they actually uh, articulate, as we see with when Heidegger talks about Heraclitus, it's a pre-philosophy. They are... We were, that's how we spoke in more poetic ways. That's how we first articulated being. So the poets are quite, in actuality, articulating being first before it can be articulated as philosophy or anything like that, right? So yeah. to undervalue it as just something that's whimsical, no, that's how it's first coming together. So, and that's what these romantics were doing. And like we just said, we just, that's one thing that they've sort of discovered that you just mentioned. And like I mentioned with Tennyson, he's discovered something that we're now, we're now seeing which is that the progress thing is completely, uh, uh, obviously he's not a romantic, but the, the, the uh, although it has some of those tendencies, um, mm. the progress thing is, is, the, is the enemy. It doesn't, didn't work out. The grand hope of the utopia uh, didn't work out. But yeah, on that point of art being the first thing, people in the material frame and the loss of the symbolic worldview, which happened a long time ago in the Enlightenment, Maybe you can comment about that, but how do we walk back into this symbolic way of seeing things? Uh, I know Jonathan Pajot is one of the person that promotes this, but artists releasing more artwork, I think, needs to be important. But also talking about how to get out of this materialist frame of seeing things. What do you think about that? Well, there was a great... It's interesting that when people wanted a nationalist movement a lot of them turned to symbolism mm. and they looked for these archetypes so you have i recently came back from poland and i was looking at all these um polish symbolist um artists who were working in the 19th century the end of the 19th century the beginning of the 20th century and poland at that stage didn't exist 
it had been carved up um, between um, uh, Prussia, Russia, and um, uh, Austro-Hungary. So it didn't. It didn't actually. There wasn't actually a nation. There was a nation of Poland, but there wasn't a state of Poland. And a lot of artists were looking to archetypes. So they would th they would think they would try and embody it. They would they would idealize the peasants and so forth. And I think that it's a very natural thing to want to return to those archetypes and those symbols mm. when you are deprived of your natural either your natural language or mm. having a a, a a nation sized community that you naturally mm. want to do default to these mm. to these languages and also these old myths mm. i'm slightly concerned now that how seriously are people going to take these myths mm. how are they are they just simply going to laugh at them are they going mm. to say well you know you're just this is this is clearly this is just a route to uh, engineer us into a, a more um tightly knit uh, collective and um this is and you know my my um you know my my degree in anthropology tells me da, 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 da. yeah yeah I'm, I, I do <laughs> i do wonder i think people do naturally react to archetypes and national figures uh, i mean because i mean look at the the reverence towards uh you know sort of churchill for example who who is sort of cast as both a uh, an arch patriot but also he's you know he's got many progressive elements to it he's he's quite mm -hmm. a he's a he's an anti-colonial in many ways so yeah i i don't know it's it's a it's a very complex thing well yeah of course we can point people to philosophers who are idealists who make a case for that bernardo cutstrop's one of them i mention him a lot uh, uh he makes the case for idealism it's sort of close to uh, gels very well with Jung and uh, Schopenhauer, but this is a guy who was a computer scientist, PhD. He's had physicalists like uh, hardcore scientists come on, and they all admit that they have no higher argument than he does. It's up for grabs. The ground of reality is up for grabs in terms of quantum mechanics. They know that, right? Not woo, not woo interpretations. I mean, hard interpretations that use empirical. And he uses empirical examples. So that's one way we can do it, I suppose, is show those things. Uh, and then talk about how the ancients used to see things. But I talk about it in the sense that, no, but that's the, actually the better way to see it. Because when you talk about a symbol, it's a thing that helps articulate how higher-order phenomena work. Say, if you're going to talk about a state, it's better to understand it as a being or an angel. Uh, or an angel, right? Oh, what, what the hell is he talking about? Angel. Hyperagent is what cognitive scientists are now calling it. Like, again, I say this a lot, guys, I know <laughs> on my channel, I know I say this a lot. But yeah, or sociology would say it's a, you know, it's a distributed social system. But really, it is. It's a kind of organism. So mm. understand, and the symbols used to be, that's how they articulated it, a more efficient way to mediate that phenomena. So there are ways of walking people into that. But even if we didn't start with that, um, that's the mission, of course. Of course, the people need to be, um, what's, how, how to plan trusters or the people that are promoting it need to believe in it, of course. And I do, um, of course yeah. there needs to be great arguments to support that. So 
to actually walk people out of. Because materialism is bunker bullshit. That's it just is so bullshit. Um, <laughs> but not to, not to uh, dwell too much on the ontology of it. But in terms of even just the nationalism element of it, and this is something that I've talked about before, which is how to make good nationalist or even ethnic art and we should, I think, because even a lot of the I've looked at your art and such, and this is there's all it's great stuff. But some of us, I think, we should do nationalist art. And how do we do that without it being propaganda? My my view is to imbue yourself with it, and it should like Tolkien. He, that's English art he's doing. He's imbued himself so much with the Anglo-Saxon Church walking down the street. It's next to you know the cobblestone. He's lived amongst it. Tom Bombadil, all these things. They've absorbed it. What do you think about that? How do we make it not be propaganda, but authentic ethnic or, or, or nationalist artwork that promotes our way? Yeah. Well, I think that a nationalist art would have to have an element of um, the ethnos in it because mm. it, this, this would be sort of a, a, guarantee, a guarantee of authenticity because we've seen the way that symbols, national symbols, have been hijacked. So national symbols or national um, national institutions or organizations, they can be hollowed out. So you can have, you can say, oh, well, we've got a royal family. The royal family is British, you know, so roughly speaking, mm. it's British. But then, of course, what happens when your royal family has more affinities with um, the people in Davos than it has in the people mm. of, mm. you know, Durham, for example. Mm. And what happens when your national flag is turned into sort of uh, into uh, a mug or a pa mm. or a sort of or a cushion or mm. a pair of jeans or a jacket or something? Mm. What what is there to stop these symbols from being hollowed out, and you end up with something like sort of um, biscuit tin nationalism, as it were? Yeah. That you know, yeah. you know, Scotland is shortbread. Well, you know, mm. um, that's that's it's very simplistic. Mm. Um, so you're going to have to do something that's going to have to involve symbols that are national and are connected to ethnos, and yes. Yes. And that means that your archetypes are going to have to be indigenous, mm. indigenous English or indigenous Welsh or indigenous whatever. Mm. They can't, you you can't have, you can't have something that's um, mixing mixing your messages and involving an element of multiculturalism in your yeah. in your national in your new national symbols, mm. um, and that's that that's going to be quite tricky to do without mm. simply looking racist although of course mm. in another way you can simply say well you, you just have to step over that you're going to get called racist anyway so well i think that's true is that uh, even people i remember talking to uh pajo and talking to him about this project and he was saying oh they're going to call you racist just for talking about the english way of being right on your, I just said, well, yeah, as, as soon as as soon as you say indigenous English person, yeah. you're, you're automatically racist. So you've already stepped yeah. over the line. And you might you might, yeah. might as well. But I mean, in the end of the day, though, you talk, you are also talking about a metaphysical entity, uh, a metaphysical thing, because uh, it is a way of being that you articulate. But that doesn't matter to them anyway. That's all going to always be uh, 
uh, uh, material genetic anyway. And, and for all practical purposes, even if you could imbue yourself with that soul, it's just not going to happen these days. So, I mean, I see it as a metaphysical soul personally, but of course, the, you know, the physical gives form to that somehow. I don't know how, the epigenetic, whatever. I don't know. But even if it wasn't, right? So, because people try to use Enoch Powell's comments that are similar to what I would say, is that perhaps it is possible in some way to metaphysically get this Englishness or whatever, right? But he says that, he, knowing it's completely impractical, and if you asked him, he'd say, well, no one's going to do that. And no one's going to spend 10, 20 years doing it. So even if you do have this view, you might as well be just talking about an ethnic thing that can't mm. be transmitted anyway. So. Well, I, I th well, I think there's, there's one way that's very easy, very easy to separate. So you've got, for example, architecture. So architecture can be absolutely of the place because it's a mixture of the materials that you have to hand the skills and the t tools that you have to hand your aesthetic taste, which also mm. comes afterwards, but it also bleeds up to this. Um, and what, and what the, the function of the building is. Um, so that's why buildings have very specific regional characters. And this is sort of regionalism. Mm. What you would do for a people, I don't know what you would do for a mythology. I don't know mm. because it's, um, it's very much more open. But then in another way, you would say, well, actually, if you're talking about these symbols, what you need is martyrs. You, what you need is a real person mm. who's actually going to be martyred to die for your cause, for your people. Mm. And then they will become a symbol. They will become shorthand in the way that, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, Joan of Arc becomes um, a symbol for French nationalism. Or French chauvinism, that's because she was a real person and she really did die fighting for the French against the English. Um, and so what you might do is you might simply say, well, we nominate this person as our symbol of um, sort of Englishness or Frenchness or whatever. And this is something that is distinct to us and it's unique to us and it comes from a historical reality. So rather than inventing someone, you in, inventing something, you might adopt something which is real and then embroider it and then talk about it in symbolic terms. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Also, you can do, the, do what they did with Alfred the Great, which is you could even say that he was implicitly in their being. And they did almost in the Victorian age what the Romantics were doing is they dug up and they realized who Alfred the Great was. So, you know, translated the Bible, talked about saying the English needed to all know the Bible. So I'm going to translate it for them. Crazy. This is Marcus Aurelius stuff. This is, uh, mm, I don't get mm. why he needs to be more celebrated as a great, uh, even as a king of all Britain. So an imperium, an, an early altar imperium, you could call it. But yes, someone like that, it, it's, it's, it's saying, well, here, look, this is, the, this is English, right? Um, and mm. true, though, I think it needs to be true to being. That's why I spend so much time on Robin Hood saying, because I'm mm. big on hero worship, Carlyle, in, in that sense. Is that, mm. Oh, yes, um, the, the great man theory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or the hierarchy, the hierarchy in terms of, I think the hierarchy is within. That's the value hierarchy we're talking about. The cosmology we mentioned earlier with the connection to the old cosmology, Ragnarok, those things are there that affect even still now uh, how we uh, interact and what we value, what we're drawn towards. You can call them like value attractors. This is how Scheller would talk about it, phenomenologists, mm. like... Um, 
uh, Heidegger is that you've got this, uh, uh, there's an ordo amoris, which is an objective value hierarchy, right? And you have one within, uh, if you take objects, the subject, object, whatever. Anyway, you have one within. And so you're drawn to something. It's imbued with it. And you have it too. So it's an attractor. You don't necessarily have to select it, but you've got a yes or no. And so, but it's pulling you, right? So that hierarchy is in you right now. That Robin Hood hierarchy, the King Arthur, Alfred the Great, these, you know, in the procedural mm. uh, inheritance is actually there. So I think what you're saying is very true is that you can do that, even select and select figures that have that hierarchy. Because I would argue that um, Tommy Robinson, despite what people are now saying about him and whatever, he did imbue a Robin Hood uh, archetype. And I think that is why people were drawn to his cause and his principality early on when he did it, right? Yeah, so, I, th I think what you do is what, once if, if you've got a, a, an individual who is seen to be standing up for people who are not represented or people who are shunned, uh, and they are, you know, of your, of your ethnos, of your nationality, uh, then I think that there's naturally going to be a lot of um, sympathy. There's going to be a lot of... Um, response to that that's going to have a high charge as it were and you could you could definitely have a figure like that and i would say that these figures are going to arise it's not it's mm. not going to be a question of you sort of selecting a figure i think that the there's going to there's going to be a natural um mm. a natural common affinity for a figure who arises as a hero mm. and that this will that this will naturally inspire people who come afterwards, um, and people who um, exist at the time. Are you seeing with you and the people that are now reaching out to you? Are you seeing a growing intensity? Is there a growing momentum building in our distant sphere? Because you're more a, a locus. Well, we or, or I am, I suppose, too, with the, what I'm doing. But still, I think on the ground, the events that you're doing. You probably have a good barometer for what for that. And is that intensity growing? Is it accelerating? What you yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's a combination of boldness and bravery, and also a sense that the people know that the old ways are going. Mm. You are never. It doesn't matter if you are the best painter in the country. You will probably not get bought by the Tate Gallery. Mm. You will never have an exhibition, a major exhibition at the Hayward Gallery or the Whitechapel Gallery if you are white. <laughs> let's say, yeah, let's say you are white if you are a national of Britain, if, you're, if, you're, yeah, if your ancestors yeah. are British and you were born here. Yeah. If you are... Um, politically ambiguous or conservative or reactionary yeah certainly not yeah if uh if you're if you're straight i mean obviously these are these are less yeah. these are less important but you know if you if you go down the hierarchy it it's reached a stage now where people realize that they're never going to get what they were promised yes this may have been this may have been true 30 years ago it's not true anymore and people can see it it's obvious yes you go to an ex you go you look you look down a listing of exhibitions in london and mm. you can you just have an automatic response to seeing certain foreign names in the listings you think yeah rightly or wrongly you know why they're there 
and of course this is this is terrible for them if they if they are competent artists this is terrible yes. for them because it means that they're being dismissed a priori but that's, that's the thing that people need to get really this is such a big point i want to build to this i want to get this home is that your world picture is over what you thought that was the competent and uh, some of us are realizing this early some of us realize this early listen to now listen to me now is it, it's over what you thought you could get didn't exist 20 years ago you were sold a lie all the advertisements on the festivals all that stuff that said oh it's a competition no 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 we know enough now we have enough evidence no it's over that world's taken away and the more people realize that then we can build a parallel thing but yeah, yeah. and and i think i think that people are realizing you know you only you only get one life you only get one career you only get you only have a, a limited window to develop as an artist you have a limited window to provide for a family mm. to sell work to get those commercial opportunities or to get the contracts with mm. ngos and state organizations those commissions those public commissions mm. you know you need that money coming in in order to well, buy a house i mean like okay ideally buy a house to get married to have children mm. to to, to get involved in those things, to invest in buying the work of other people or yeah. supporting or giving money to help publish this or to put money into a foundation or so on. Mm. You, these things are not infinitely deferrable. And once you realise that you have to act and that you have to mm. act with other people, you can't just, mm. <laughs> you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You're not going to be able to just stand up and say, look, I'm, I'm a really good artist and I'm not getting a chance. Mm. People are not going to pay attention to you. OK, yes. firstly, it's going to look like sour grapes. Secondly, it's going to look like, yes. well, this is just an aberration. This doesn't necessarily mm. tell us anything about the system. What, mm. Once you start to get a whole bunch of people in the same situation, realising they're all in the same situation, and that although they might be individuals and individualists and competitive, they have to work together because... Mm it needs to be a collective effort. Now, this yeah. is the tricky thing because we, artists are not naturally collect, are not naturally involved in collectives. Yeah. Although yeah. you've seen the rise of the art collectives like in the Turner Prize last year, I think it was, only collectives were, artist collectives were nominated. So the left does this, does this very well. The right does this somewhat less well. Yeah. So you need to get your dissidents together and, to, and for them to say, look, we know we're not going to get into the old system. We've got to forget the old mm. system. But we have to do something. We have to do something now. And we have to mm. start selling now. And we have to start getting reviewed now. And we have to have our own venues. And we have to have our own publications. Yes. And we have to start Hierarchy. up our own schools because we can't mm. rely on um, the art schools that exist, the art departments of universities now mm. as they exist they're not going to teach the skills that we want to transmit. They're going to not going to transmit the values that we want to transmit. We have to do it ourselves and we have to do it right now. And I do feel that this momentum is absolutely building right now. And the thing too is that I realized early, because I won awards and the first time I won one, I won a Directors Guild Award, right? And I received it, it immediately disempowered itself, which is what awards do, is that you seek something because it's memetically desired and you get it and you realize it's worthless. It's just really a thing to use to get more work or something like that, right? But oh, yeah. that key, key lesson for me was that 
all these things fundamentally, they are control mechanisms now, especially to control what is put out and that sort of thing, right? Because you yes, have to meet a certain category. And I must say that every, even in the, at the film school level, like 20, whatever years ago, is that you even, I remember even doing it then, I'm, oh, I'll give this some leftist bent because that's what they like. I remember even doing that to get selected, right? Mm. So even people that aren't of that politics are doing that uh, sort of thing. But we need to realize to disenchant any award that you might see that, oh, I want the BAFTA, I want this. That's shit. And they've already degraded it anyway. But get it out of your brain, firstly, because that world's been taken away from you. And secondly, that we need to build our own, right? Because and it should just... be a badge of shame. It should be a badge of yes. shame. Yes, to badge of shame. And to win it now. Yes. Because you're, you're, you're a degenerate. Like, yes, yeah. you should be calling them. You, you, you entered that. You complete. Yeah, but the people that, yeah. that are sort of halfway, like Daily Wire types that want New York Times bestseller mm. list, we just say that we need to be, it needs to be a disvalue on our side. It needs to be a sort of, oh, disgust, you're pathetic. What, uh, you know, it needs to be gross yeah. to even have that. And then I think, that, you know, so that's a really important point you just made there. It's not just saying it's worthless. It's saying, no, if you are a sort of centrist, and you went for that, and you're displaying it, and I, I display my award still, although it's I, you can't say that's been completely left eyes what I won, but still, even so, credentialism in a way, that's what it is, but still, we do need to get to a place where you say that... Well, we, we need cre credentialism on our side. Yes, That's yes. what we need. Okay, we, mm. you can't dispose of hierarchy, and you can't dispose no. of the argument from authority, but you just simply need to have a system, an eco, an, a structure, yes. an ecosystem... Um, a set of networks which is on your side and preserves your values mm. now how, how are you going to monitor that how are you going to control it if you're not really I mean well certainly not one person is going to be able to do it um, so that's the difficulty so you you've got so you've got to set up your own systems you've got to set up your own I mean as you said we are already we already have the passage, passage prize. prize we already yeah. have publications like Bornbrook and Mallard and and mm. other things like that we've already got we've already got our own media shows we've got our own talk shows we've got our own sort of influencer networks yes we need more we need more collectors at all levels and I would say that this starts with um mm. it's of course it's fantastic to have patrons and you need patrons especially big patrons if they've got money uh, you know, if you're watching, you know, email in the description bar below or whatever, you know, of course. Yeah, 100%. It's amazing work, by the way. But go, go. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, but you need those those big mm. patrons. You need the big money. But you can also now do crowdfunding. Mm. That mm. changes the game, especially anonymous crowdfunding. But also it goes mm. down to even low levels of like having a disposable you know 50 or 75 pounds to spend on a, a drawing or a print or something or just even spending 10 15 pounds on a catalog or something mm. enough people doing that it makes a difference it really shifts things so you suddenly you reach a stage where you can make a living from writing and or make a living from art and i'm one of the the very few people who can actually do that at the moment but you know it's but it's not it's not guaranteed but yeah, it, yeah. we need we need more people reaching my level so that yes, people are yeah. starting to look and saying that guy's making a living viable yeah it's viable he's also serious he's doing serious work and mm. he's part of a community 
not just yes. an artistic community, but a broader community of people who he has shares values with and who appreciate him and who he is willing to support him publicly. That suddenly starts to look like my future as well. That can be my future. Yeah. I could go for them rather than going for the Arts Council money. Yeah. I agree. And I think that that is starting to build. I think I'm even talking to lots of people now, by the way, about these things that people in uh, L.A. and New York and people that have been in my industry and such that are uh, now a part of this thing, building cross-promotional apparatus. We need to really get that down, I think, that just backing each other because we've all got a pretty decent audience, right? But and we, when we merge that together, that's really powerful. And uh, that's starting to accelerate. So I would say also other people watching this that are content makers and such, Contact me because, you know, we'll we'll keep growing this cross-promotional network, but also sharing reserve knowledge. So say the Passage Prize needs to have a connection somewhere, uh, perhaps on some intranet or whatever it is with you, uh, the people that are building the institutions to say, OK, what's your procedures for protect institutional protection from leftist takeover, for instance? Because I'm having uh, Agni on to talk about stuff like that. It's how they, they did that in Poland. Things like that, that sort of behind-the-scenes mm. network. That's really important as well. Institutional. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. So we should we should talk basically there. We've got, we've got a, a mutual connection with the UCCCA, mm. um, which is an arts organization in mm. Poland, in Warsaw, which is um, very, very, very politically broad. Um, let's mm. just say because because they do they have shown some left wing art, but they they are more welcome to showing right wing art or reactionary art or. Um, that sort of that sort of work, um, which wouldn't get a hearing elsewhere. So they're actually extremely um, sympathetic and broad-minded um, mm. to sort of dissidents um, and conservatives, and just you know simple conservatives as well. Um, so we need we need organisations, more organisations like that in Britain. Mm. So this is something that I I wrote. Um, I wrote a uh, pamphlet some, you know, I think it was last year, uh, which was called Towards a Based Barbican. And it was basically talking about, well, is it possible to set up an arts centre mm. where you could go and um, disc have, an, uh, have a literary panel on um, Celine and you mm. could... Um, and you could do um, a festival on Evola or Carlisle or mm. something. Mm. Or you could have a sort of... Um, you know, a, a, a film series on on whoever, you know. Um, would it be possible to run that? And you'd think, well, automatically you're going to get sabotaged. There's going to be hit pieces on yeah. you. There's going to be, they're going to come after your bank. You know, they're going to come after your your ways of, uh, ways of funding. They're going to, mm. they're going to look at your zoning regulations and decide suddenly that you're in a residential zone and mm. oh dear look oh dear it's nothing to do with us sudden suddenly suddenly a large art art center doesn't uh, doesn't comply with local regulations on mm. um you know your 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 fire safety you know suddenly your fire safety uh, certificate is revoked mm. out of nowhere <laughs> who, who could have thought it so i was thinking like would would it be possible and i think yeah, I think theoretically it could be possible if you could overcome those those hurdles yeah. which would be thrown at you, and all the all the hit pieces, all the smears and stuff. If but if you take it seriously and you do the best of serious classical art, the best mm. of traditional theatre, the best um, mm. serious performances of important symphonic works mm. and so forth, 
you could have a whole lot of uh, material now which is considered beyond the pale. You could mm. add that. And this would um, build a certain sense of community. So you'd have people who would go along for the for the classical stuff, but then they'd say, oh, you know, like, well, I don't know who this who this Carlisle chap is, you know. Yeah. I don't know who, you know, I, you know, sort of interested in Celine or whatever, you know. Mm. So, you know, it, it might be possible to set up a synergy between doing the mainstream classical, the canon, and also... Mm doing um more more sort of dissident stuff more reactionary yeah, stuff yeah. um which is something that i said that the, this this polish group is um doing quite quite well i do think we should do that uh because an important part of this is is it's transgressive right and you know as we know women women love that and <laughs> which are an important part of and even men men like the transgressive too the young people like the transgressive um so a mix of those two th and that's not why it's done it's just that's it's because you know most of us a lot of us are reactionaries right so that's the kind of stuff that we're drawn to but it happens to be that the transgressive is attractive as well so th there's no reason why you shouldn't grab that and so the people that you get enough people that are interested in that you can actually flip the whole game because it draws the people that's what the liberals did back in the day well yeah. what, what i would what i would say is everything everything that the current elite supports now is decadent it's extreme. Mm. It's transgressive. It's, you mm. know, you see what they're teaching children. You see what they're promoting on TV. You see what, how they're how they're casting historical shows with, mm. let's say, non-historical actors. You know, there's the whole the whole basis of the regime is um, to be transgressive. Um, so they've, yeah, they've sort of reached the bottom though, in the sense that. It almost that isn't transgressive. It's actually uh, that's how the operating system works, I suppose. And when you're down in the filth, it's really just it's more filth. It's more filth or deeper filth. Yes, with pedophilia and all that sort of thing. Yes, I understand that. But at the same time, it's not breaking their rules. What we're doing is breaking the rules. Them, they are the rules yeah. of their revolution. They're they're, yeah. they're they're fake. They're not the counterculture is what we're doing, right? Their counterculture is yeah. fake uh, and gross <laughs> and pathetic yeah. and, and weird. But, but then, and weak. Uh, then, but then you're surely, but then surely you're going to reach a stage, and I think we're already reaching the stage now where you have like the bioleninism. You're reaching a level where people have reached these where. People have uh, reached certain um, jobs, and they've been placed in certain jobs because of um, certain characteristics, not because they are competent. Mm. And so you've got, and you've got a massive skills deficit, which everyone's been talking about recently. And you think, well, actually, these systems are, are starting to crumble already. They're yeah. just not competent. They can't run these things. Yeah. So this this makes us better and better because we're. We're risk takers. Yeah. We're gamblers. We're also competent. We believe in skills. So this sets yes. us up as an advantage to set up our own systems. It's kind of doing this. Where we get, it's doing this, right? If you can see me, and we've got a really yeah. unique opportunity right now, but we have to capitalize, right? So now is because I do see some. I'm not convinced that this will uh, happen totally, but there are some more liberal Hollywood people that have uh, realized, oh, well, we'll figure out a way to do this story well or whatever but then you just see a few more woke things come out and so i do think it's the, 
it's going to keep getting worse anyway. But still, you want to be careful because you don't want them to catch on and go back to that 1990s degeneracy, which is just a little bit. Just because they used to be boiling us like frogs, right? Now we can sense the heat. So while the audience now knows that how, how bad it is and how shit, how shit their work is, we want to, as our competence is now rising, even over theirs, right? Our work's better than theirs at the moment. You'd probably say it's like there. Um, it might not have the production value, but the quality of the writing is, is better. You can see this, a lot of Passage Prize winners, all that stuff. So there's a unique opportunity to, to take a big swath of the audience who are, want authenticity and the truth of being um, right now. And so also the audience listening, it's important that people, you know, we've got to think about this like a union as well. Because of that opportunity, pay the union dues, be a part of the union, join people's membership, right? Not to spruik payment or whatever, yeah. but you want to yeah, be a part so, of something. So, you have to so be join a part people's, of yeah, so join people's, you know, become a supporter on the, you know, on, on different channels, you know, make donations, subscribe to magazines. I mean, like physical copies of magazines mm. and journals, buy books, physical copies of books, if, if, if you've got the space for it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, well, I think that you're completely correct. That, but of course, the problem is, of course, we're talking in open comms. So, yeah, people who who are naturally ill disposed to us are watching this right now. Mm. Um, but I, I, but there's no point in talking about this behind closed doors. I mean, we do. We obviously, you know, the artist group that I'm talking to and that that will be exhibiting in the summer. We're talking privately about how to how to organize the show, but also how to frame yeah. it, what the narrative's going to be. Um, and we're doing that in private. We're having this conversation in public. And but I think it's important for us to do that because you know I'm not I'm not embarrassed or ashamed about anything that I've done or anything that I've planned. Yeah. Uh and, and you know there's nothing that I've said in private um that I would be ashamed about coming out publicly. So I think that you just have to you have to embody the values that you want to see and that means yeah that means living your life privately as you live it publicly now obviously you can't yeah. be as completely open as you might like politically in a sort of one-to-one -one interaction in a shop or anything you know where you know mm. someone's hanging a ukraine flag and you might be more skeptical about the ukrainian <laughs> government not the ukrainian people but about the ukrainian government yeah. than they are that's assuming they know anything about this subject at all mm. which they Probably don't Probably if don't. they're in Britain and they've got a Ukrainian flag and they're not actually yeah. Ukrainian because there are some Ukrainians here. Mm. But obviously you can't be as public as that. But I think that just in terms of principles and the things that you're interested in and the way you conduct your life, I think that for me, I think that I have to live as an open book. Mm. Now, I know it's different for a lot of other people who are living kind of like covertly. They're in industries where they're having to go sort of like to, to diversity training and, you know, mandatory sort of racial bias awareness training and stuff like that. They're having to fill in forms. They're having to say things that they don't believe in. Mm. I can't do that. I'm just mm. not constitutionally capable of doing it. I understand why people do do it, mm. you know, especially as we've talked about earlier, if you've got if you've got a wife, if you've got a mortgage, if you've got children, if you've got, you know, relatives that you're depending on um, who are who, who buy into the status quo. Mm. It's very difficult. But for me, I, I, I have to live the way I live. And I've, you know, I've suffered consequences because of what I've done. But mm. I'm prepared to accept those consequences and I, I don't hide anything. 
And this is, and that's a, yeah, that's a great uh, statement there. And also this is where, or at least for religious people, I think that's where God comes in. Uh, in my view is that that faith uh, helps people to be able to stand out. But even the people that aren't religious, that are brave and do that, it's very, um, we have to, because you have to show people that this is the truth of what's, what, you know, to have someone to imitate. And we need mm. our disagreeables because I'm I'm sure you're probably high. If you did a personality profile, of you you'd be high in disagreeability because oh yes, that to, yes, to very very high disagreeables. Yes, because you you have to have that to have courage. Most artists and entrepreneurs have that. Um, but yeah, if you're very agreeable, you're unlikely to be able to do it. The negative uh, emotions are going to be too high for that sort of thing. So thank God for that. You have to back them because we need the young people need people to imitate. And if we don't do that, too, think about it. If you can't don't have someone out there telling the truth of how you feel and think about things, then no one gets to see it. And then you think that what you're thinking is wrong when it is actually the truth. Um, yeah, I, I have a lot of people come up to me in private. I mean, you know what I'm going to say, you know, at the end of the sentence, people come up to me in private and they say, thank you for the work you're doing. Mm. I, it's really important. I've noticed these things too. I thought I was mm. the only one. Thank God you're speaking out because mm. I know that I'm not alone. And that I agree with you and that I wish you luck. And I, you know, mm. I, I would like to sort of join you or whatever. Um, you, and they, and they, and they buy your books and they write yeah. good reviews for you and stuff like that. And, and that matters. So that counts, but you're right. And I, and I do, I do worry about this lack of, yeah, I, I'm very interested in the question of um, spirituality and, and how much mm. you would have to, have a spiritual basis for a renaissance of um, mm. dissident or reactionary art. Yeah. Um, because there's obviously a lot of dissidents who are not religious or they are pagans mm. or, mm. you know, they, they've expressed an affinity for paganism and so forth. Um, what's, uh, what do you do? Uh, are you going to, are you going to say to them it, because this is like the, the, the problems that we have in our group at, not not problems that we have, but the differences we have in our group that we have some people who are returned to tradition. Yeah. We got some um, uh, sort of uh, you know Bowden-esque uh, reactionary modernists. Um, we've got some sort of postmodern traditionalists who are much more involved in sort of pop culture and memes and so forth. Um, you know, and and I've identified myself as a part of a fourth group, the the vitalists. So we're mm. we're thinking and talking about essential aspects of human existence, like suffering, about yeah. you know, and the importance of birth and death and family, of unions, of being, uh, I mean, like a sort of personal unions, um, of being of being true to yourself and and to your community and so forth and so the vitalist would be sort of like someone like, Nietzsche, uh, like sort of Nietzschean but also I would mm -hmm. say an artist like Edward Monk who paints okay. puberty death birth jealousy uh yeah. nostalgia um melancholy uh fear yeah. uh damnation um so uh, and you're, you're examining true human constants which are perennial which come up yeah. again and again and are, are true are always true um and will never change so I, I would say i'm part of that group but yeah so we've got this problem that we've got all these yeah. different aspects and the question is also like i said how how much emphasis are you going to put on spirituality are you going to say this is a, a core value are you going to say it's optional or 
I don't know. What What do you think about that? It's tough. Um, I do think that, well, it depends what you think your metaphysics are, but in terms of, if we just talk about it pragmatically, I think you need that conviction of of that zeal, that plan trusting to actually have that group of core people who are just true believers. You could probably do that ideologically, I suppose. You've seen some ideologies that are able to oh, do yeah. that, but I think being on the right, perhaps maybe it's not as easy to do that. that. Usually it has some sort of, it has to be top down, really heavy top down to do it ideologically. I'm not sure mm. that would work. I don't know. I would. I think all I, all I know is, is that that conviction's needed. And perhaps that second religiousness is something that we should work towards. Um, and, and who says you can't still be a vitalist and have that at the same time? I, I, I don't, you can still be a vitalist artist and still have that as a something. You can, you know, we're, we're very good at segmenting different parts of our, you know, so it's not that you, you can't do that. And even a great philosopher should be able to convert themselves into a way of thinking, right? If you're before committing to one anyway. So if you're a full-on materialist or whatnot, I think you failed as a philosopher if you haven't been able to become an idealist or even convert yourself into Christianity, whatever it is. And then or you have, if you just decided on physicalism or without ever being anything else but a materialist, yeah, I think that's a failed philosopher. In that, in my, that's my view. So at least see if you can get into it because then at least perhaps you know what it takes to have that kind of zeal and conviction to seize through something that is bleakly heroic because the odds are against us in many ways and that is how we won all these great battles that we it looked hopeless and we just had this zeal so one thing is well maybe okay here's one thing perhaps we don't need it because with the anglo-saxon it's very much that he's gonna fight on anyway despite the because of the old cosmology like we mentioned earlier despite the horrible situation and it's impossible how impossible it is, that's the apocalypse. That's Ragnarok, right? So there is a value yeah. there for, well, that's just when the value triggers, is that, well, I'm just going to bleed to death and do this anyway, right? So perhaps that can still be activated. But I do think the zeal of religiousness is important as well. Um, yeah. To, I, to the, I, to the I, movie, I, yeah. yeah. Well, what's happening with these artists is that they, they, they see that they're going to have to fight. They're going to have to put their heads above the parapet they're going to have to be disagreeable mm. because they've got no choice there's mm. the the system the system is the, the the public art system is so so politically controlled by people who are opposed to them um that um that they've they've got no choice and that i think that the bravest of them the most competent of them mm. um maybe you know maybe cut down they may be martyrs i mean not not necessarily physically, you know, not actually killed, but they may suffer consequences with yeah. um, deplatforming, with cancelling, with banking, with, you know, there's obviously going to be more and more mobility restrictions coming in. Um, I mean, it looked as though it was going to be based on vaccines. Now it might be based on sort of social credit and carbon carbon credits and stuff. But that's going to be, that's going to be, the, th the thumb screws are going to be applied, you know, quite delicately it might even be just through algorithms and so forth that they know that they know who your political sympathies yeah. are so we, we are going to have people who are going to have to be willing to suffer and i've said that mm. i'm willing to suffer i've suffered already and i'm sure that i'll be suffering more um but so uh, that's that's just it's... inevitable and i think that and suffering is inevitable in 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 the human lot and whether or not you're a christian there are people mm. of 
all of, of many faiths and of no faith who understand that suffering is part of humanity. So yes, I will, you, you I will take my shame. Yes, and you're going to suffer, like you say, you're going to suffer anyway. And what are you going to do when you look back as a grandfather? Is that you, 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 you or well, not grandfather, just an old man? You're going to say, oh, I never stood by any conviction I had. I never, I could have stood up and just at least lived a life because you don't know what could have happened. I'm a big person who thinks that you'll work it out. You will work it out, even though it will be bad in the short term. You'll find some way of surviving. It's not like you, you know, yes, people have families. Your kids could be on the street or whatnot, but you can always get a job in a pub what you know there's always ways of doing things i'm not saying don't be prudent yes you could be so smeared that you can't get a job anywhere i understand that but i'm not saying don't be prudent in doing that this but you have to live live the truth of being to a degree i think i know people are in a hierarchy but if people are artistically inclined or they are disagreeable figure out a way there's a way that you can work out that you can begin to tell the the truth or begin to to move towards move find a way to move towards the authentic truth of being uh, rather than living in the lie of the they as Heidegger talks about the lie of the propaganda machine um i think yeah that's what everyone can start moving towards and you're a good I, example I, of it you didn't just do it straight away did you you thought about okay you didn't just come out and say ah n-word 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 <laughs> you know, whatever it is right yeah no 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 um well, what happens is, I think that... I just mean shitposting. I don't mean that you're a hidden yeah. crypto, whatever. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, yeah. No, um, yeah. No. so what happens is that I think that you end up making art whatever the situation. So even if, even if I could never exhibit again, I would carry on making art for myself in private, and I would hope that at some time, some way, sometime in the future people would get to see that art and they would get something from it. They would appreciate it, uh, that it would mean something from, and and I would be able to transmit some of the things that I had, some insights and some of my values through my art. And you don't, if I think if you're a really committed artist, you just, it's not, it's not a choice that you you're doing it. it. You can't help you, it. You can't help it. You're, you're, you're doing it because you must do it. You must do it to feel human, to feel satisfied, mm -hmm. to have, some sense of contentment um and if you are religious you feel like well i have a god-given ability mm. and i'm and it's my duty to exercise that ability to the best of um my capabilities but you might what i mean is that you before you criticize the arts council before you oh yeah in terms dissident, of my writing yeah. you didn't you didn't just come out with you thought about it. You didn't just you thought about how many resources I had. You thought how many people do I know? You would have thought, or did, you didn't just immediately go, "I've had enough," and I'm suddenly going to do it. You probably well, thought prudently a bit, or did you? I don't know. <laughs> you did. Well, yes and no. I mean, I as as soon yeah. So I had I had a little bit of. So I should explain my background. Actually, this is so I, I start. I trained as an artist and as a, an art historian. And I've basically been a practicing artist all the way through since the 1990s when I finished my um, degree. And I've been a practicing and professional artist all my life. I've sold a lot of work. Um, I've had commercial exhibitions. I've sold work to museums. Not recently, I notice. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know quite why that's happened. Yeah. So and then but I was also started to write art criticism um, sort of seriously around 2005 or so. 
Um, so for the last sort of almost 20 years or so, I've been an art critic. Mm. And so I had like a basis of, I had quite a good roster of professional contacts in the, in the art criticism world. So I'd written for lots of journals, I'd written a few pieces for newspapers. I'm not really a newspaper guy, so that, that didn't really take off, but I had wrote for some general art publications, some glossy art publications, um, uh, sort of more sort of niche stuff, uh, some academic places. Mm. So I'd, I'd done quite a lot of that and I had, you know, I built up a fair, a fair amount of a good track record in, in total. I've actually published over about a thousand articles. So wow. quite a lot yeah. of work over at that time. Um, so what happens was when I started to speak out about, you know, I was, I was sort of critical of quotas. Um, when I, when I started to be critical of, um, the women's art lobby and feminism, that was something where I seemed to have touched a nerve. And I noticed yeah. that a lot of my editors and almost all of the editorial, um, assistants were female. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to go into details, but basically I got, I got fewer assignments from that period on yes. and that's kind of, it kind of, it kind of declined quite precipitously in the art specialist press. So I found myself sort of frozen out and I, mm. I knew people were going to be critical of what I was writing, but I thought, well, as if I'm writing a review of, of this, of this German painter, you know, I'm not going to be talking about feminism or women or anything, you know, it's, it's not going to be relevant. So I'm going to submit this article. They're going to look at the article and say, oh, don't really like him very much, but the article's pretty good, you know, because mm. I had a good reputation. So we'll publish it anyway. Well, you know, that was a little bit naive. That's not how I just I simply <laughs> wasn't getting my calls answered. I was putting yeah. in pitches to yeah. editors and editorial assistants who I'd been working with for years. And there was, I was, they were bouncing back emails to me, you know, every, every, you know, the, the next day, you know, whatever, saying, yes, this is great, or no, you need, no, no, this isn't our sort of thing. But then suddenly it stopped. I wasn't mm. getting answers to my pictures. Wow. And, yeah, then then you kind of see how the land lies. And mm. um, so I lost, a, you know, quite a few assignments. I lost quite a bit of work. But um, I, don't, I don't regret doing what I've done because um, I've been honest. And I found other alternative channels. Um, yeah. I would still be perfectly happy to write for those those other outlets, those other more traditional mm. outlets, those the glossy magazines and stuff, but I don't need it. Yeah. It would be nice to be able to have my work accepted on a mm. sort of um, quality basis, but that's not going to happen. And as you, as we said earlier in the conversation, is that world is gone anyway, is that it wouldn't wouldn't have been long because you are someone that's already established um you've already established your reputation so you're still getting work but the young man is not going to get it over the other you know the person you see so that's yeah different. that's that's what i was so, saying about the dream that 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 dream is gone that world is yeah. over um being if if you go in if you go into these sort of situations as a critic as a writer as a commentator and you're already marked as a dissident or a dissenter mm then you're not even going to get your foot through the door with most mainstream yeah. publications or even a lot of specialist publications. You're better off going to new media or alternative mm. media, um, um, you know, going through YouTube, setting up a YouTube channel yeah. even, and just sort of relying on, I mean, it's a little bit precarious on YouTube, but, you know, setting yourself up as, as a commentator or interviewer or yeah. analyst or video, a video essayist and asking for donations. Um, you, you probably yeah. earn up. You probably earn more from those 
than you would getting paid, you know, £75 for yeah. an article that it's taking all you the that, same amount of time to write. And all that matters is that you have an audience. That's always what it was about. It always what it was supposed to be about. Not about, as long as you yeah, have I mean, an income, yeah. Yeah, I mean the 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 income kind of was uh, was kind of like secondary because uh, to, mm. to begin with, what you do is you do a lot of articles and you're writing for free. Mm. Um, um, and I've reached a stage now where I basically don't do any free articles anymore. Yeah. But when you're starting out, you have to do it all the time, uh, and then you get picked up and you get, you know, you start getting piecework, you know. Um, but if now it's it's looking really. Uh, your prospects are quite low. I don't know mm. exactly because I haven't approached many new places recently. But um, mm. yeah, may, maybe some maybe some of your watchers or your commentators could could give you a better feed on that. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. But I think what's what's great about what's happening is it is exciting. I think your life is going to be much more interesting, and the work you're going to do is being much greater. Had you stayed where you were and not said anything, uh, in my view, there's just so much happening. Channels are growing, channels are exploding of friends of mine. So, and there's yeah, there is there is money around as well, right? So I think it's much more exciting. The life you led, I think people should look to it, even themselves. This alternate sphere. Obviously, be careful with your anonymity. Test your work. Get competent first, but. Um, Alexander's a great example of that um, and an inspiration really for a young man coming up because uh, you're not going to it's not going to work in that world that dream's over just remember that part of this conversation but that's pretty pretty much um, on that note that's pretty much all I had really unless you have a final thing you wanted to say and we'll bring it to a close yeah uh, no uh, just that it's been a, a real pleasure chatting mm. to you and having this discussion because it's been like it's been a, a real discussion um, mm. If anyone wants to uh, follow me, I am. Uh, let me check my. Let me check my Twitter handle. It's uh, at Adams Artist. Um, you can also support me. Um, you can read new content and support me by going to alexanderadamsart.substack.com. If you become a paid so a paid member, then you get more content, and that also helps me out a lot. You can also um, buy a book. Um, if you want to see my art, it's alexanderadams.art. Yes, please do that. It's in the description. It'll be in the pinned comment as well. Become a member, like I said earlier, uh, of mine and uh, of uh, Alex's as well, right? It's a union. It's like that. It's a union. Think about it that way. And uh, God bless everyone. Thanks for watching. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have Alex again back on to talk about the, you know, his next projects and that sort of thing. See you later. That would be fantastic.